Jesus once told a parable answering the question, who is my neighbor? You may remember the story. A man had been robbed, beaten, and left for dead. And two of the most respectable people in Jewish culture walked by, saw the man, and instead of helping him, simply went to the other side of the road and kept on going. And yet when a Samaritan saw the beaten man, he had compassion on him. And at great expense to himself, took care of the man. By describing the man who cared for this half-dead man as a Samaritan, Jesus had chosen a religious, ethnic, and immoral other to be an example to the Jews of what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves. And today, as we continue our sermon series, The Acts of the Risen Christ, we find out that this religious, ethnic, and immoral other is not just an example but is actually a full member of God's people when they receive the gospel in faith. Now, last week we saw that persecution caused the church of Jerusalem to be scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And as they were scattered, they went about preaching the gospel wherever they went. And today we're going to now zoom in on just one example of those who had been scattered faithfully preaching the gospel wherever they went. And as we do, we'll see that this text is tailored to teach us that the gospel is a powerful gift for everyone. The gospel is a powerful gift for everyone. And we'll see this by asking two questions. Who is the gospel for? We'll see the gospel is powerful for everyone, including the despised. And how is the gospel received? We'll see the gospel cannot be bought, but must be received as a gift. Before we dive into God's word, let's ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which points us to Jesus. We thank you that it shines a light on our heart, that it accomplishes your purposes, which is to make us wholehearted worshipers of you. And so we ask today that your word would do that work in our life. Your spirit would enable us to understand and apply the scriptures to our heart, so that we might grow in our faithfulness to you, and so that we might worship you wholeheartedly. I ask that you would help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately, so that we would come to love Jesus more as we spend time together in your word this morning. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 8, verse 4. If you don't have a Bible, now would be a great time uh, to grab a weekly word and prayer off the welcome table in the foyer. It'll have the passage printed for you to follow along. Uh, but if you do have a Bible and aren't quite sure how to make your way through it, Acts is in the second section of the Bible called the New Testament after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but before Romans. And then you'll be looking for a big, bold eight. That's a chapter followed by a small number four. That's a verse. And once you've found it, just take a moment to quietly prepare your own heart to receive God's word. Ask that God would help you to listen and receive what he's prepared for you this morning. If you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. Wonderful. Look with me at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard 
that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So who is the gospel for? The gospel is powerful for everyone, including the despised. The gospel is powerful for everyone, including the despised. Verse 4 again opens with a summary of what's just taken place. The church had been scattered throughout the region, and they went about preaching the gospel. Now, as the late pastor John Stott points out, the statement that they preached the word is a little bit misleading. The Greek expression may mean nothing more than they shared the good news. Further, I want you to notice that it's no longer the apostles who are doing the speaking of the good news. Uh, We've seen up to this point, it's been primarily the apostle, and specifically Peter, who's been preaching the good news. But here in particular, we see that it's no longer them. We saw last week that all the apostles remained in Jerusalem. But here, as those who are scattered go along, They're speaking the good news. This is ordinary Christians like you, like me, going about wherever they're going, speaking the gospel wherever they go. As one pastor and professor describe it, it was an unselfish, unselfconscious effort. They were scattered from their base in Jerusalem and they went everywhere spreading the good news, which had brought joy, release and new life to themselves. This must often have not been formal preaching, but instead informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances and homes and wine shops and on walks and around market stalls. They went everywhere gossiping the gospel. They did it naturally, enthusiastically, and with conviction of those who are not paid to do so. And so consequently, they were taken seriously and the movement spread notably among the lower classes. This is how the gospel, how Christianity grew so fast among the early church. Just ordinary people talking about Jesus wherever they went with whoever who would listen. This is a reminder to all of us, the call that God has placed on all of our lives, not just mine, but all of us. It's to live our lives with gospel intentionality, looking for every opportunity the Lord would put in our place to tell someone about Jesus and the hope that they can have in him. And so, having given us this context, Luke then zooms zooms in on particularly the ministry of Philip, one of the seven, as he is scattered to the unlikeliest of places. Verse 5 tells us that Philip went to the Samaritans. Now, I've already alluded to this, but it's shocking that Philip would go to the Samaritans when we consider how they were viewed by the Jews. The Samaritans were despised by the Jews for being unfaithful religiously and of mixed heritage ethnically. When the ten northern tribes of Israel had been sent into exile by Assyria, and Assyria had put some foreigners in that part of the country, the Jews that remained intermarried with those foreigners. And so they became of mixed ethnic heritage. And not just that, but they began to adopt some of the religious practices of those foreigners and tried to integrate them with their Jewish beliefs. This caused a great divide then between the Jews of the south and the Samaritans in the north. They were no longer pure Jews, and they no longer worshipped according to the Old Testament scriptures. And this schism then hardened when the Samaritans eventually built their own temple as a rival to the temple in Jerusalem. And they actually rejected all of the Old Testament except for the Pentateuch. This led the Jews then to say things like, to eat with a Samaritan was to make yourself unclean. To marry one of their daughters was to make yourself unclean. And in fact, the Jews even began to accuse the Samaritans of immorality, of aborting and killing young babies and children. And so by the time of Jesus, the Jews did not even associate with Samaritans. John, one of Jesus' disciples on one occasion, asked Jesus if he can call down fire upon the Samaritans. He hated them so much. All this to say, The Samaritans were despised. They were religious, ethnic, and immoral others. Those that the Jews wanted nothing to do with. And yet, it is to these despised others that Philip proclaims Christ to. 
And as we consider the fact that one of the reasons why these Samaritans were despised so much was because of their ethnicity. This is a great reminder to us that one of the reasons why the sin of racism should be so unfathomable in the church is precisely because of the gospel. Not only are all people made in God's image and therefore worthy of dignity and respect regardless of their race, but so also has Jesus commanded us to take the gospel to all people, including people who are racially and ethnically other. And even more than that, the scriptures tell us that when anyone receives Jesus as their Lord and Savior, we are made one in Christ. There is no distinction. And yet, sadly, the stain of racism is one that historically marks the church in America. I'm sure many of you have heard the phrase that's been often repeated for the last 60 years, that 11 a.m. to noon each Sunday is the most segregated hour of the week. And still 60 years later, since the civil rights movement, that proves to be mostly true. And while there are many reasons that that's true today, what's not often paid attention to or talked about is why Black churches and white churches that share the same theology started worshiping in different places in the first place. And the reason this happened is because black brothers and sisters in Christ were not treated by their white slaveholding Christian masters as full brothers and sisters in Christ. They weren't treated as if they were one in Christ. In the days of slavery, a slave Bible was produced omitting any scripture that would undermine a white slaveholder's right to own a black Christian. Because even if only at a subconscious level, white Christians realized the Bible's teaching regarding the image of God and what it meant to be made one in Christ undermined any claim to own a person as a slave. This is why in Virginia there was even a law made in 1667 that said this. It declared that the baptism of slaves does not exempt them from bondage. Do you, you realize what that law means? It means Christians recognize that baptism should make everyone equal in Christ. And so in order to make sure the slaves are still evangelized, we're going to make a law saying, no, baptism doesn't make you one. You still stay a slave. And eventually this unequal treatment of black brothers and sisters is what led to the establishment of black churches and black denominations as slaves sought the opportunity to worship in a community where they would be treated by brothers and sisters in Christ with the dignity they ought to always have been. And we've come a long way since those days, and yet we are still experiencing the consequences of the sinful treatment of slaves some 350 years ago. White churches and black churches still largely worship separate from one another. Why? It goes all the way back 350 years. We continue to reap those consequences. I actually think this is one of the reasons why race relationships in America continue to be so hard, especially in the church. We are geographically and socially isolated from our non-white brothers and sisters. And in our isolation, we don't understand one another. Fortunately, Jesus' blood is enough to cover even this dark stain. And as we put to death the sin of racism in the church, and continue then to preach the gospel to all people, regardless of their race, we can continue to make progress. Because the gospel is for everyone, including those who have been despised. In verses 6 through 8, we actually see that it's these despised others who paid careful attention to Philip. And they rejoiced greatly as he delivered the people from unclean spirits, healed the sick, And they received Philip's message in verse 12. So in verse 8, we see that there's great joy. And in verse 12, we see that they believe them, believe Philip's message. We should recognize that even though the joy of verse 8 is separated from the faith in verse 12 in terms of the literary construction, joy and faith belong together as the experience of gladness as a fundamental characteristic of people who have repented of their sins and who have come to faith in Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. What God has done for us in Christ changes everything. So we can't help but respond in joy. So let me pause here to ask you, are you marked by joy and gladness 
as one who has been redeemed by King Jesus. If you have repented of your sin and trusted in him, regardless of your religious background, regardless of your ethnic heritage, regardless of your moral performance, the reality is that you formerly were far off from God. You were considered an enemy of God. But while you were an enemy, while you were despised even, while you were a religious, ethnic, and immoral other, Christ died for you. And now if you trust him, you are forgiven. You are loved. You are adopted as God's sons and daughters. Now you will always and forever be able to draw near to God through Christ. How could we not rejoice at such a privilege to come into the presence of God because of what Jesus has done? Part of what brings such joy is not just the gospel going to an unlikely audience, but it's the power of the gospel itself. In verses 9 through 13, we're introduced to a man named Simon who describes himself as someone great. And the people from least to greatest are said to describe Simon as the power of God that is called great. Now, it's hard to understand exactly what's meant by this phrase, but it may mean something like they consider Simon a representative of God, if not God himself. Why? Because he amazed them with his magic. Yet despite all this, in verse 12, we see that upon hearing Philip preach the good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, the same people who had paid attention to Simon are now paying attention to Philip's message. The same people who had once regarded Simon as something great and were amazed by him are now amazed by what Philip is doing. Believe Philip and are even baptized. And not just that, Simon himself is said to have believed and be baptized and be amazed as Philip performed signs that Simon couldn't produce with his own magic. As we read this account, we should acknowledge we live in a world that often overlooks or denies the supernatural, that often thinks of magic as an illusion, as that thing that's not real. Yet in much of the world still today, and especially in the ancient world, magic, or what we would call witchcraft, sorcery, or the occult, was a real thing. And it was based on the view that human beings, gods, demons, and the visible world are all interconnected in ways that can be influenced by rituals, including incantations and the manipulation of objects. And the purpose of all this magic is to overcome public or private problems, defending people from disease or from spiritual attack. This is real. Simon is said to have amazed the people with his magic. We should not pretend it doesn't exist. And yet, as they hear Philip preach the gospel, as they see God work through Philip, the gospel is more powerful than Simon's magic. They're more impressed with the God of the gospel than they are with Simon. And so they abandon it. And so although we need to account these things as real, as not things to be overlooked, we should never forget that our God is greater than anything that we might encounter in this world. And as I draw your attention to that, let, let me ask you, please, pray for my family. Uh, I have drawn attention to this a couple times, but I, I have sensed this acutely again recently. I, I sense me and my family are under spiritual attack almost constantly. If you look back on the last three years of our life, there have been so many things that continue to disrupt ministry, that continue to disrupt life, that bring stress to us, that prevent us from doing what we believe the Lord has called us to do. And the, Satan and his demons are real. But our God is greater. And so I would plead, please pray for me as your pastor, that God would guard me. Please pray for my family and our health, that he would guard us from health uh, issues that continue to disrupt our ministry and ask that God would help us to be a family that would point people to Jesus. And let's trust that our God is great enough to overcome all those difficulties. And even if he should choose to allow those difficulties to continue to persist, that he would have some purpose for them in our lives. But what is this gospel then that Philip is proclaiming and that the people were believing? 
Well, verse 12 says that Philip preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. These phrases are loaded with theological significance. The kingdom of God, according to one New Testament scholar, is the king's power over the king's people and the king's place. Or another would describe it as the rule of God over God's people in his creation. And the good news is that when Jesus, the son of God, became a man, he said the kingdom of God was near. And when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he established the kingdom not in its fullness, but in part, here and now, so that anyone could enter the kingdom of God through his name and through his work. For a moment, let me just say that every now and then you'll hear people divide the kingdom of God from the cross. On the one hand, you'd hear churches often like ours preach Christ and him crucified as the only hope for our salvation. And on the other hand, you'll hear other churches where you'll rarely hear the cross, but you'll hear statements like this. The thing Jesus preached about most was the kingdom of God, which is true. But then all they'll talk about is the kingdom of God. God's rule in this place, bringing justice, peace, wholeness. They'll talk little about the cross. But in the scriptures, those two things are never divided. We enter the kingdom of God by way of the cross. Jesus established the kingdom by the cross. They're both important and are joined together. God is bringing his kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel as the church lives out the realities of the kingdom, the priorities of the kingdom in their life together. And yet we enter into that by repenting of our sin and trusting in Jesus. As Peter had preached earlier, there is no other name by which men must be saved. And it's this message, if you're not a Christian this morning, that we want you to hear and receive with joy. Jesus is God's anointed king who made it possible for you to be delivered from the domain of darkness and sin into his kingdom of marvelous light through his life, death, and resurrection. So when you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, that his death was sufficient to forgive you of your sin and reconcile you to God, Jesus then qualifies you to enter into his kingdom, not by your works, but by his. So we enter his kingdom by way of the cross. And once you enter into his kingdom, God has prepared a work for you to do. We expand his kingdom and build his kingdom by proclaiming the gospel and living out the gospel as a church, reflecting the values and priorities of his kingdom. So if this is something you'd like to talk more about, if you would like to be a part of the kingdom of God, if you would like to experience Jesus as Savior and Lord, please come talk to me after the service. Talk with one of our members. We'd love to tell you more about how you can enter the kingdom of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Yet again, what's most striking about Philip's message, according to one commentator, is that the Jews thought they alone would be in this kingdom. Yet Philip is proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom to non-Jews, to the despised Samaritans. And the good news of the gospel is that anyone, everyone in fact, even unclean Samaritans, despised Samaritans, could enter the kingdom of God through the name, the person, and work of Jesus Christ. Philip's making it clear that union with Christ, not our ethnic identity, is the gateway into God's kingdom. And his message, again, was received with joy. Well, this explains, I think, why we find the unique experience of, in verse 14 through 17 of the apostles hearing the Samaritans believed and were baptized and then sending Peter and John, the apostle who wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans, no longer to do that, but instead to pray for the Samaritans that they would receive the Holy Spirit. But why? Why didn't they already receive the Holy Spirit? Why was this necessary? Well, some would read a passage like this and suggest this is evidence that the normal Christian experience is to have a two-stage experience of conversion. You first believe and are forgiven of your sins, and then later you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. This teaching takes a couple different forms, but at its core, it teaches that the Christian life is experienced in two stages. You have some experience where you're forgiven and you become a Christian. 
But you either don't have the Holy Spirit or don't have the Holy Spirit in its fullness until some later experience of the Holy Spirit where the Spirit visibly manifests itself in your life. However, I would suggest this passage should not be taken as the normal Christian experience. After all, in Acts 2, Peter says the two things you need to do to receive the Holy Spirit are repent, which is the natural consequence of faith, and be baptized. And our passage explicitly says the Samaritans believed and were baptized. There's no reason to think they shouldn't have received the Holy Spirit. And this is why then Luke says in verse 12, or sorry, verse 16, that this is so unordinary. He says the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized. The reason he would use language like not yet and only is because it's so extraordinary that these people had believed and been baptized, but not yet received the Holy Spirit. And so why is it that the Samaritans believed and were baptized, but not yet had received the Holy Spirit? Again, I think the answer is best explained by remembering how significant it is that the gospel had come to the Samaritans. Remember, this is the first time the gospel has gone to any non-Jews at all. And the Jews thought they would be the only ones in the kingdom of God. And not only that, the Jews despised the Samaritans, and the Samaritans had rejected the Jews. So given all this, it's entirely possible that Jewish Christians would have continued questioning whether the Samaritans really had believed the gospel, received the Holy Spirit, and become part of the people of God. On the flip side, it's entirely possible that the Samaritan Christians, and having lived apart from the Jewish community for so long, would reject the authority of these Jewish apostles. And so, when the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit, by the laying on of hands by the apostles, God is actually confirming two things for the early church. To the Samaritan Christians, God reveals they need the mother church in Jerusalem, and especially the apostles' teaching. This is what the church is founded upon, the apostolic teaching, which is the gospel. And to the Jewish Christians, God confirms salvation really has come to the Samaritans, those despised, religious, ethnic, and immoral others. The gospel has come to even them. In fact, through this experience, God confirms that both the church at Jerusalem and the church at Samaria constitute the one people of God. (coughs) So the gospel really is powerful for everyone, including those we despise. So given the need here to vividly show that the Holy Spirit had come to the Samaritans, these despised people, since the Jewish Christians wouldn't have believed it any other way, we should ask ourselves, I think, do we believe there are people who are too dirty, too wicked, or simply too settled in their rejection of the gospel to come to Jesus? Who are the religious, ethnic, or immoral others in our life? Who would the Samaritans be in the American church today? Would it be Muslims? Would it be immigrants? Would it be the LGBT community? What we see here is the gospel is for them too. Salvation really can come to them. And in case of some immigrants... The gospel is actually coming back to America through them as they bring the gospel with them. This is one reason why we as a church value being a reconciled community. By which we mean we aim to demonstrate that our community is united because of Christ across every barrier that could divide us. Christ has been breaking down barriers since day one. And we want our church to be known for breaking down the barriers that divide us today. We want it to be obvious that what unites us is not our common interests, not our musical preferences, not our political convictions, not our age, not our ethnicity, not our nationality, not our financial status, not our education or stage of life. Rather, what unites us is our common faith in Jesus Christ, who has made us into one body made up of many members through his death. And his resurrection. So who is the gospel for? 
The gospel is powerful for everyone, including the despised. Now, how is the gospel received? Look with me in verse 18. Now, when Simon saw the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I may lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you say may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So how is the gospel received? The power of the gospel cannot be bought, but must be received as a gift. So as soon as Simon the Great saw such great power through the Holy Spirit being transferred by the laying on of hands, he offered to buy this power for a sum of money. Now, the text doesn't give us any real indication of his motives for doing this, other than he wanted this power for himself. But considering the context of our passage, it doesn't take much to imagine why he would want this. Earlier, Simon had considered himself great. Earlier, everyone from the least to the greatest considered Simon great. But now no one's paying attention to Simon because they're all paying attention to Jesus. And so if he could just get this same power the apostles had, he could become great once again. But that is not the life of a Christian. The life of a Christian is one where we must decrease so that Jesus may increase. And so as quickly as Simon offered to buy this power, Peter then rebukes Simon in the starkest of terms. In verse 20 he says, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Notice the problem according to Peter. Simon is trying to buy what is a gift from God. But gifts aren't bought. They're received. And so Peter continues to warn Simon that his heart is not right with God, that he is in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity, as he longs to establish his greatness once again in the people's eyes, he's living in sin. He's captured by bitterness of losing his status. As Peter warns him of this, he also pleads with Simon to stop trying to buy the gift and instead to simply receive it. He urges him, repent of his wickedness and pray to the Lord that the intent of his heart would be forgiven. Stop trying to buy this. Just come to Jesus. Repent and trust him. And in this, I want you to see what a gift of God's grace correction can be. As Peter is rebuking Simon, he's offering a chance to repent and be forgiven. This is grace. And this is why the psalmists and the Proverbs would celebrate rebuke or correction of a righteous man and would encourage the wise man to receive correction. So I'd ask you, is there anyone in your life who could offer you correction and you would receive it? If there's someone in that in your life in that way, do they know that you would welcome their correction? If not, as you pursue a relationship with them, tell them you would welcome that. And if there's not someone like that in your life, as you get to know someone and trust their character, trust their understanding of Scripture, trust their love of Jesus, let me encourage you to ask them to be that kind of friend to you. And kids and teenagers, look up here for just a second. I know you probably don't want to hear this, but this is one of the reasons why parents have been put in your life. One of the things your parents are called to do is to correct you. And I would plead with you, when your parents correct you, to receive that correction as a gift of God's grace for your growth. Now, parents, I want you to look up here. I want you to notice that I said one of the things you're responsible to do is correct. That's just one. But if all you ever do is correct your children, 
They won't be able to hear it, and you may be in danger of provoking your children to anger. And so let me plead with you, before you correct, that you make sure that your household is marked by love, that your children are encouraged by the various ways you see them doing well, the various ways you see them growing in Christ, and only in the context of that environment offer correction. If you're not a Christian, again, Peter's rebuke to Simon is Jesus' invitation to you. Repent of your sin, trust in Jesus, and you will be forgiven. There is no greater gift, no greater hope, and no greater guarantee. You can be free from your guilt and your shame as far as the east is from the west. So that far, God sends our sin from us. He will remember our sin no more. And because he doesn't remember it, you don't have to either. Please, please consider turning to him. Well, in response to Peter's rebuke, in verse 24, Simon asked Peter to pray for him, that none of what Peter has said would be true of him. And as a result of this response, much ink has been spilled trying to answer the question, was Simon really a Christian? Was he really a believer? And some, of course, argue, yes, Simon was really a Christian, pointing to the statement that he believed and was baptized and his favorable response to Peter asking that Peter pray for him. Well, then others argue, no, Simon was not really a believer, pointing to the seriousness of Peter's rebuke. You have no share in this. And the fact that although Simon does ask Peter to pray, he doesn't do what Peter said, which is to repent and pray himself. And on the side of those who say that Simon was not really a believer are many of the early church fathers who said that Simon was the father of all heresy, that Simon had corrupted Christians in Rome by his false teaching, and that Simon had become the untiring adversary of Peter. Now, unfortunately, in my estimation, the scriptures themselves don't give us enough, ans- uh, enough information to answer this question. And they're not primarily concerned with whether or not Simon was really a Christian. But regardless of that, whether he was or wasn't, I think we can learn something of the nature of true conversion. If Simon was a Christian, we see a great example of the fact that it is possible to become a Christian and still have a great need to grow in our spiritual maturity and our understanding of the scriptures, of who God is, and what it means to live before God. In some ways, that would simply remind us that all of life of a Christian is growth in Christ. We never stop growing. On the other hand, if Simon was not truly a Christian, but only professed faith in Christ, but later reveals by this request and his response to correction that he had never truly repented of his sin and trusted Jesus, we see a vivid example of the fact that it's possible for someone to profess faith in Jesus but later reveal they never really belonged to Jesus. This is why John would write in 1 John chapter 2, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have, not continu- they would have continued with us. In other words, true Christians are those who per- persevere in the faith all the way to the end. And so the application for us today, whether or not Simon was a Christian, is that if you have professed faith in Christ, You need to continue to grow in Christ all the way to the end. Persevere in Christ. Because true Christians both grow and persevere to the end. And thank God that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. However, at the end of the day, I don't think, again, the point of this account is to consider whether or not Simon really was a Christian. I think the point is to see what happens when we misunderstand who the Holy Spirit is how that leads us to treat the Holy Spirit wrongly. Depending on how we view the Holy Spirit, we either try to use him or we yield to him. In the Foundations of the Christian Faith, James Montgomery Boyce writes this. If we think of the Holy Spirit as a mysterious power, which a recent survey reveals that 51% of evangelicals think of the Holy Spirit as just a power, not a personal being. So if we think of the Holy Spirit as a mysterious power, our thought will be, how can I get more of the Holy Spirit? But if we think of the Holy Spirit as a person, we will ask, how can the Holy Spirit have more 
of me. The first thought is non-biblical and pagan. The second is New Testament Christianity. And the distinction and outlook is illustrated in the book of Acts with Simon and another account we see in chapter 13. So on the one hand, there is the case of Simon, who we just saw viewed the Holy Spirit as a power to be bought for his personal advantage. The contrasting example comes from a few chapters later in chapter 13 with the first missionary work of Paul and Barnabas. In that case, we're told, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. In the first example, an individual wanted to get and use God for himself. In the second example, God got and used two individuals for his glorious purposes. Listen, we cannot, we cannot buy our salvation. We cannot buy the gifts that God has given us. Nor can we buy the Holy Spirit. Which means our money, our social status, our talents cannot save us or cause God to give us positions in his kingdom. That also means no amount of good behavior nor bargains with God can ever make God give us what we want. He isn't our personal genie. He is our omnipotent Lord. And yet when we see the Holy Spirit as our omnipotent Lord and yield to him, surrender to him, depend on him, he empowers us for Christian ministry. He conforms us into the image of Jesus, bearing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He becomes our seal and guarantee until we receive the inheritance when Christ returns. And he intercedes for us according to the will of God. This is all the Spirit does for us when we surrender to him. And so let me ask you, are you yielding to the Holy Spirit? Or are you trying to use the Holy Spirit for your personal gain. The beauty of all this. Is that we can't actually buy or use the Holy Spirit. He won't let us. And yet. He was bought for us. By the precious blood of Jesus. And so all that's left then. Is for us to receive the gift. Turn to Christ in faith. And yield to the Spirit's work in our life. For our good. And his glory. So how is the gospel received? The power of the gospel cannot be bought, but must be received as a gift. Northwood, the gospel is a powerful gift for everyone, including the despised, including the religious, ethnic, and immoral other. And as a gift, it cannot be bought, but instead must be received by us in faith. And it's these things we celebrate As we come to the Lord's table. We come to the Lord's table empty handed. With nothing to give. And everything to gain. Remembering that it was by Christ's body given. And his blood poured out. That we were forgiven of our sin. Reconciled to God. And sealed with the Holy Spirit. And we come to the Lord's table to celebrate. That by his death on the cross. We have been made into one body. And partake of the one bread. And as we do this, we express our unity as a family of despicable sinners who have been made into beautiful and beloved saints. Dear brother, dear sister, do you realize that's who you are in Christ? You are beautiful. You are beloved. It's because this is what is true of every person at the foot of the cross. There is no room for earthly markers to divide us. If we have come to Christ, it does not matter what used to be true of us, what is still true of us. We are now united in Christ. This is what the Lord's table reminds us of. We come by grace because of his body given and his blood shed. We come united in Christ because Jesus died to make us one. And we come in anticipation the day that Jesus will come back when we will feast with him face to face forevermore. But first, Paul warns us, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. But what does this mean? As I've been doing the last couple times, Before I tell us what it means, let me explain what it doesn't mean. 
It doesn't mean you have to be perfect to take communion. Paul doesn't say only perfect Christians can come to the table. If only perfect Christians took communion, no one would ever take it until Jesus came back. And it doesn't mean you have to examine yourself to the point of unhealthy introspection. I know some of you use this time to look over every single thing you may or may not have done wrong in the last week. That is not the point of this. Instead, it means we should examine ourselves to see if we're Christians. This meal is a meal to remember that Christ died for us and to celebrate our unity with the church. And so if you have never been added to the church because you have never repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, then this meal is not for you. And so instead, you should use this time to consider what Jesus did for you. Consider turning to him in repentance and faith. Second, this means we should consider our heart before God and those in our church. If you are living in secret, ongoing, unrepentant sin, you shouldn't take communion. If you have hate or bitterness in your heart towards a brother or sister in Christ, you shouldn't take communion. So examine yourself. Is your heart right before God? Although you're not perfect, does your private life match your public confession? Are you nurturing love and forgiveness for your brothers and sisters in Christ? If not, repent Seek to be restored to your brother and sister. And until then, take the time, this time even, to consider all that Jesus has done for you so that you might be encouraged by the grace that Jesus is showing you to repent of your sin and be gracious towards others. And if none of these exhortations prompt you to reflection, take the next few moments simply to reflect on what God has been saying to you in his word this morning. Perhaps the questions on the screen will be a help. How does knowing you are among the despised Jesus died for stir your heart with joy? Which religious, ethnic, or immoral others are you tempted to treat as if the gospel is not for them? How does Jesus' gracious invitation to repent and be forgiven give you hope? And are you yielding to the Holy Spirit's power in your life or trying to use the Holy Spirit for your personal gain? Let's take some time to reflect on God's word and examine our hearts. down the center aisle, take the element back to your seat so that we can take it together as a celebration of our unity in Christ. But now I invite you to come to the Lord's table by his grace. You didn't earn it, you couldn't. And so if you have trusted in what Jesus did for you on the cross and by his resurrection, he now invites you to come to the
before Jesus was crucified, he shared the Passover meal with his disciples. And as they reflected on the deliverance God had already given his people once before in Egypt, he began to teach them that the next day he would deliver them from their sin. And so taking the bread when he had given thanks and broke it, he said, this is my body which is given for you. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Let's now eat the bread together in remembrance of Christ's body given for us. And then taking the cup when he had blessed it, he said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you. As often as you do this, drink this in remembrance of me. Christ's blood was shed to make the new covenant. A covenant where God's law would be written on our hearts and our hearts would be made new. Let's drink the juice now in remembrance of Christ's blood shed for us. Northwood, Jesus went to the cross for you. While you were his enemy, he loved you enough to die for you. And three days later, when he rose from the dead, he conquered sin and death so that we might have life, joy, and hope in him forevermore. So let's now stand and sing like we really believe that's true.